Jesus Christ touched Mark's life at a young age and uh, he grew. He grew and he uh, went out on Paul's first missionary journey, came back. But while he was uh, on Paul's missionary journey, you remember the story that Mark was afraid of a circumstance and he split right in the middle of the journey. And so the next time, Barnabas, who was Mark's nephew, or Mark's uncle, excuse me, said to Paul, let's take my uh, nephew, Mark, to go on this journey with us. And Paul said, forget it. Guy's a wimp. We tried it the first time and he split on us. I want somebody who can cut the mustard, do the job. Barnabas said, give him a chance. Paul said, no. Barnabas said, come on, Paul. Paul said, no. And they had such an argument that they split company, went on two entirely different missions. But praise God for Barnabas, who encouraged him because eventually Mark went to Rome, became a servant of Paul. They were reconciled. And from there, Mark wrote this gospel that we have before us, this wonderful encouragement of Mark. It says in verse 1, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. It's the beginning of the gospel, which means good news. And unfortunately, Christianity has been portrayed for such a long time by so many people as something other than good news. I have... um, Heard the reaction of certain people when I first became a Christian. As soon as I became a Christian, I went back to some of my high school friends and those who were going to go to the same college I was going to. And the word got around, and I remember, never forget this one person's reaction. He said, you know, Skip became a Christian. And his reaction was, oh, it's too bad. And he was serious. He figured that You know, he had so much to live for. He had so much going on the ball. But you know, you hit rock bottom and what do you become? A Christian. That's unfortunate because I think Christians of all people should portray good news more than anything else. There was a time in the church, church history, when the gloomier you looked, the more spiritual you were. If you look like an absolute, emotionless nerd, dark clothes, frown, always serious, hushed tones, you were spiritual. Jesus said that he came to bring us fullness of joy. And although Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, toward the end, on his journey to the cross, he said, these things I have spoken unto you that you might have fullness of joy and that my joy might remain in you. There's one thing this world needs, as you know. It is good news. Someone before the service tonight, we were talking about the debates. He said, yeah, you know, the tragic thing about the whole thing is that one of them is going to get elected. (laughs) You look at the issues confronting the human race. It's bleak. People are groping for answers. And people are groping for joy. I have found that the average person that I talk to when I say, well, what is it that you want out of life? What are your goals? It boils down to, I just want to be happy. 
They just want some meaning and something to live for. And people are groping like crazy. And people are ending up in despair. Sixty people every day in our country kill themselves. It's the tenth leading cause of death in our country. Suicide. Even the entertainers who look so happy and have the uh, comedy shows beyond many of their lives is despair. Mark Twain, who made a lot of people laugh and a lot of people think, underneath was broken and torn by sorrow. In fact, Mark Twain was in private noted for saying, the only people I have ever envied are the dead. And he said, I always envy the dead. In the midst of a dark world, the beginning of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. John is often called the forerunner of the Messiah. He came as a sign. The prophet said, one will come. He will come in the likeness of Elijah. In fact, it says Elijah will come before the great and notable day of the Lord to turn the hearts back to their fathers. John the Baptist was a very strange individual. I kind of think that if he were around today, the average church person in this town would run for cover. He was not your typical yuppie type minister. He did not fit the mold, and perhaps that's one of the reasons I like him so much. He was fiery, full of conviction, no compromise, and it says that people came from all over to listen to him. If you read the other Gospels, it says that people all the way from uh, the heights of Jerusalem would take this long trek some 30 miles to look at John out in the desert. What's funny is that uh, he was a Levite. He was the son of a priest, you know, those pastor's kids can be pretty rowdy sometimes. And John's out there in the middle of the desert. He's not on the streets of Jerusalem. He's proclaiming a a message of repentance to the people. It says in verse 4 that he came baptizing. Now, to the Jews, that wasn't too odd since they were used to ritual baptism in the mikveh. They would go through ceremonial cleansing, both out in the desert and rituals in the temples and in the synagogues. But he came preaching repentance. And he came baptizing, not as a ritual. He didn't tell people to get real religious. He told people to get saved. And he spoke about repentance for the remission of sins. John the Baptist did not practice his ministry on the streets of Jerusalem. But he made people come to him. Now, I've often wondered about that because I have been in that part of the world several times. And he's out in the desert, and it gets to be about 120 degrees, a limestone desert. It makes the moon look lush. And he's out in the middle of nowhere, and people 
would leave the city of Jerusalem and take this hike 30 miles through the deserts. No buses, no cars. And they would walk out in the desert to see John. Something attracted their attention. And it wasn't his diet or his dress. There was something more. You know, there are uh, methods that we use when it comes to public relations that God ignores when he gets his message out. If you were going to bring the Messiah, and you were going to be the PR man and the forerunner for him, man, you'd want to hit the metro areas. You'd want to plug New York, L.A., Chicago. You'd want to get the big cities. But John's out in the middle of the desert, and people are swarming to him. I have read and heard many uh, methods and um, theories on church growth. Now, make sure it's in a strategic location so that everybody can get to it. Because nobody's going to come if it's way out in the middle of nowhere. God broke all the molds. And throngs of people were out there to hear John speaking about repentance from their sins. Because John touched on a chord. And that is people feel guilty because of their sin. John wasn't the kind of guy who really cared about what people thought about him. He did not pander to their whims. He didn't compromise. And he spoke about sin. The result of sin is that people feel guilty. I would describe guilt in my own terms as disliking yourself. Things about you that you don't like. You hurt somebody and you don't like the fact that you do that. And the feeling that you get from that is guilt. And sin creates guilt, and guilt creates fear. And John touched upon that nerve, and they're all listening to him. And uh, let me just read another portion of the Gospel of Luke, which has the same event recorded. Then he said to the multitudes, listen to this graceful preacher, brood of vipers. That's not a tactful introduction, John. Try it again. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Repentance. What a a message. Not popular. People don't like to hear that word. It conjures up too many wrong images in their mind. In fact, the popular preachers are the preachers who don't preach repentance, unfortunately, many times. It simply means a change of attitude, a change of mind. All of us who have become Christians know what that is, that repentance is not a dirty word. It's an incredibly um, cleansing word. In fact, I had a friend of mine describe repentance as something that the Christian should be often doing. And he says, you know, it feels so refreshing when I come in repentance before my Lord. He said, Skip, it's sort of like... When you get up in the morning and you have buffalo breath and you go into the bathroom and you take mouthwash and you put it in there and you gargle and you spit it out and it feels so good and so refreshing and you need to do it every morning just to clean out the system. He says, in a sense, that's what repentance is like to me. I've got to constantly bring my guilt before the Lord if I have any and my sins, my shortcomings. And it feels so good to walk away from his presence cleansed, knowing that his blood covers all my sin. And that was John's message, repentance. And then he says, 
And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John the Baptist, although he was fiery, punchy, and spoke repentance, he was a servant. He comes on the scene and he told people over and over again, as recorded in the other Gospels, look, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the main man. I don't want the spotlight. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unloose and tie his shoes. But there comes one, this one who is mightier than I. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, I only baptize you with water. And that's not enough. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is bowing out in a sense. He's saying, I can only take you so far. I can take you to repentance. I can take you to God. If you want to go on with God, you've got to follow him. So many people will rest in that ritual. Well, I've been baptized. It's not the question. Do you know the Lord is the question. John the Baptist is sort of like a long-distance operator who connects you with another party. When you call overseas, you get a hold of an operator. Now, you don't want to sit and talk to the operator all day. Hey, operator, hey, good to see you. How are things over there? Oh, great. Now, you want her to connect you with someone else. And so the operator will say, I'm trying to connect you. Hold, please. And pretty soon, her voice will fade out, and you will be plugged into your party. Done her job. John is saying, I'm just plugging you in to Jesus, and I'm soon to depart. My job's about done. Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting or torn open, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels came, and they ministered to him. Jesus comes to be baptized. Why? I mean, all the people are coming out there saying, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, I need... I need this cleansing. I need to repent of my sins. But Jesus comes to be baptized. And at one point, John the Baptist says, Hey, wait a minute. You don't need to come and be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. Jesus said, Hold on. Just allow it to happen so that it will fulfill all righteousness. And not only is that perplexing, but Jesus goes out in the wilderness and is tempted for some 40 days by the devil. The obvious question is, why in the world does the Messiah, number one, need to be baptized? And number two, why does he need to go out in the desert and be tempted? I mean, he came to die for the sins of the world. Why did he go? Simply to identify. Simply to identify. You see, he is predicted as being the great high priest. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a high priest. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. Therefore, knowing that we have such a high priest, we can boldly have access before his throne with confidence. And we can ask for grace to help in time of need. 
Jesus came and identified with sinful man, although he did not sin. Jesus was tempted to identify with us in our trials and temptations. In other words, God crawled into a box of human flesh and experienced the things that you and I experienced, the emotions we experienced. He was hungry. He wept. He was at the tomb of Lazarus and he shed tears. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he suffered and blood came down from his head. And then he went to the cross. And so that when you cry out to God and you say, Oh God, I'm suffering. Look at this pain. You can say, I know. I know what it feels like. I felt it. So that you and I can never walk around and say, God can't relate to me. He's up there in plush heaven, hanging out. I'm here on the earth, struggling it out. Going through all these trials, all this pain, all this agony. Jesus says, I can relate. When Thomas saw Jesus, he said, Thomas, look it. Now, he's risen from the dead, and he still had scars in his hands and his feet. He goes, come here, put your hand in here. This isn't fake. This isn't drawn on. Put your finger in here. Put your hand in here. Jesus ascended up into heaven with those same scars. Because we read in the book of Revelation, in the heavenly scene, when John is taken before the throne, a voice comes and says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed to take the scroll and loose the seals. And John looks to see the lion. And he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. The lamb still bearing the marks of crucifixion. A high priest who's been touched with the same kind of stuff you and I have been touched with. And he can relate. He can identify. It was said uh, that one of the greatest preachers during the Salvation Army revival days was a guy named Booth Tucker. Now, most of us have never heard of old Booth Tucker. Let me tell you about him. Booth Tucker was holding a revival meeting in Chicago. And uh, on several nights, he was preaching about the sympathy of Jesus. How that Jesus is a high priest and he can relate to our sufferings. He knows what we go through and he's sympathetic. And afterwards, an angry, bitter man came up to Booth Tucker and said, How dare you speak about the love of God? Booth didn't know what to say. Just listen. The man pointed his finger at him. So let me tell you something. If your wife died like mine died this week and your children were in their bedrooms at night crying out for their mommy and without any comfort, crying out at night and you were in my situation, you'd never say that God cares like that and sympathizes with our weaknesses. You haven't gone through it, Tucker. That very same week, Booth Tucker's wife died in a train accident. And he himself officiated at her funeral. He was a broken man. And he stood there and he looked down into the casket at his dead wife. And then he looked at the people who were there and he said, You know, this last week there was a man who came to me at one of my meetings and said, Mr. Tucker, if your wife died like mine died this last week, And if your children were crying out at night for their mom without any comfort, you could never speak of the sympathy and the love of Jesus Christ. He said, if that man is here today, let me tell him that Jesus does speak comfort to my heart today, and he does care. And my message is the same. He said, I'm a broken, crushed man. 
But there's a song in my heart. And Jesus put it there. And he was saying this through his tears. He says, if that man is here, let him know that Christ relates and is sympathetic. That man was there at the funeral. He was so stunned that he came up after the funeral, lay down at her casket, and Booth Tucker led him to the Lord. And they both embraced and wept in each other's arms. He did it so that he could relate. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Listen to the message. Here's Jesus' first words as recorded in Mark. Here's what he says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's the theme again. Repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist, repent. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. When my wife, Lenya, became a Christian, at first I didn't really know about it because she didn't know it, she didn't know anything. At that time, uh, her dad had become a Christian. He was an atheist, accepted the Lord, called up Lenya and said, I'm saved now. I'm a Christian. You ought to become one. And Lenya thought, this guy's zoned out because he'd been an atheist all of his life. She hung up the phone and she thought, you know what? My dad isn't an idiot. He didn't just do impetuous things. He thinks things through. He's a doctor and an attorney. She said, there's got to be something to this. He's an intelligent man. So she goes, okay, I'm going to do this thing too. I'll, I'll pray and I'll believe in God and I'll accept Jesus and do this spiritual vibe. So she did. She figured, wow, you know, she read four spiritual laws, misinterpreted them because it talks about it has a throne and it shows that if yourself is on the throne that life's a mess, but you put Jesus on the throne and we, you know, and you get all these neat things around it. So she goes, great, I'll accept Jesus and get all of the things I wanted out of life. Jesus is my key to total happiness. I just do and get anything I want to get. That was the extent of her commitment. A few weeks later, she was at a church in Costa Mesa, California. And the whole service, she thought, something's not right. Something's not right. I, I don't know what it is, but something in me isn't right. And she came up to the prayer room afterwards, and one of the counselors was there. She told the whole story. And the counselor said, have you ever repented? What's that? You don't know what repentance is? No, what is it? And he went on to explain how that repentance is a change of attitude, a change of mind. That you decide to turn and change from your old values to lay down all and you follow Jesus Christ. You turn from what you know is wrong. No, I never did that. Do you want to do it? Yeah. And for the first time, she repented and believed the gospel. Before, it was just this emotional thing. Yeah, I'll accept Jesus. Sounds like a good thing. But she repented and she believed the gospel. And indeed, her life was changed. Repentance is one of those words that conjures up pictures of medieval monks flogging themselves or uh, Old Testament prophets ripping their garments. Or repentance is something that wicked people need to do, but not me. Now, the first words that Jesus said as recorded in Mark is repent and believe the gospel. If that is the case, why is it that repentance is so seldom preached? I'll tell you why. 
Number one, the appeal in modern evangelism is not for repentance, but for enlistment. Not for changed lives, but let's enlist you in our cause, in our organization, and people are seen as trophies for their little organization or church. There's another reason, and that is people many times find it difficult to accept the reality of personal sin. Yeah, you know, that criminal over there needs repentance. Yeah, I heard about him on TV and World News tonight. Yeah, he's hard. He needs to repent. That's for wicked people. Now, I wouldn't put myself in their category. Now, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And uh, good professors in college grade on a curve. Certainly God would too. There's another reason why repentance isn't preached, and that is it is unpalatable to the average middle-class congregation. It's an uncomfortable message. It shakes people up. They might not come back. Don't get too heavy on them. Don't speak about repentance. They may never return. And so we've soft-stepped sin, haven't we? Sin and repentance are old words. We don't call sin, sin. I don't sin. I have hang-ups. We put new labels on them. Instead of saying, yes, uh, my girlfriend and I are involved in fornication. Say, we made love. It sounds better. Sin with a new name. Instead of, oh, they're committing adultery. It's, they had an affair. Instead of calling it sodomy, it's an alternate lifestyle. I'm not saying we should walk around pointing fingers in the face of everybody and just say, sinners! But I tell you what I am saying. We need to come face to face with the reality of sin that divides us from a relationship with God. And Jesus' first message was repent and believe the gospel. And you know what Jesus said? He said, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. It's the most comfortable place to come is that place of repentance. Now, let me just finish a couple verses. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, come after me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And you want to know how they did it? When he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in their boats mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Just split on good old dad. Here's the point. Their obedience was immediate and total. It was comprehensive. There must be a forsaking before there is a following. There must be repentance before there is salvation. You know, I speak to a lot of people who have, have even come here for quite a long time, and we talked to a guy who'd come for six months, and he knew he wasn't a Christian. And he didn't know if he wanted to become one. I speak to other people who come and they observe and they think, you know what? 
This is a pipe dream, you guys. You are in an emotional high and you try to uh, make these things happen. But it's just not real. Like the story of the old drunk who was converted. He was out on a street corner and he was giving his testimony saying, I was drunk and I was really messed up and Jesus changed my life and he saved me. And let me, he was totally transformed. He gave his testimony. There's a crowd of people around him. And there was this one educated man who thought, and he even said out loud, he said, you know what? This is only a dream. This is all made up. He didn't really change. Like he said, there is no Jesus. This is only a dream. And a little girl heard it and walked up to the man who said that. And he said, sir, if this is only a dream, please don't wake him up. Because that's my dad. And I knew how he was before. And if this is fake, let him sleep. Because he's different. You know, I just simply want to say, some of you tonight who have never accepted Jesus Christ, and you think, how do, how do I know it's real? It might just be a dream. Why don't you try it? Bow your heads with me. Lord, it's just so neat to, again, to call you our Father and to know that we have salvation through Yeshua. Lord, thank you for the good news that has come our way in the beginning of the gospel in our lives. Lord, the songs that Marty has sung tonight and the words that your Spirit speaks through Scripture are so wonderful. Life-giving. Lord, there's so many of us who are here tonight who have been transformed, completely, totally changed. It's because of you and your blood, Lord. And Father, I pray that you will reach out to those who, among our company, don't know you as their Abba Father. They have never repented. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, you touch them.